Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are gathered before you this morning in the name of Jesus, our only Savior, our living hope, our righteousness, our goodness. We are gathered here to call on your name to save us from our enemies. We have enemies within and without, enemies in our flesh, enemies in the world, enemies in high places. And we are here because you are our rock and fortress and deliverer. You are our only shield and stronghold. So save us, Lord. Save us from our lusts, our envy, our fear, our rage. Save us from the plots of the wicked who conspire against you and against your people. Save us from the prowling of the devil. Hear our cries and deliver us. Pour out your spirit of truth and comfort and fill us with courage and strength. And so we turn to you and we ask you to deal with us completely. Do not leave us alone. Do not let us hide anything from you. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And amen. Amen. The reason we need to worship every Lord's Day is because we need our priorities realigned. We need a spiritual tune-up. We are complex creatures, and so this is necessarily a complex matter. Our loves need to be aligned with God's loves. Our hatred needs to be calibrated to God's hatred. Our desires need to be reoriented. Our values need to be reset. Our perception of reality needs a restart. The world, the flesh, and the devil are busy coming at us with lies and distortions, and we have sinned and we have logs in our eyes. So how important is that situation at work? How much time should you give to that Facebook discussion? What is your responsibility to local politics? How are you doing with your kids? And what about the movies, the reading, the summer camping, all the rest? There are so many good things in this world so many potential distractions, so many needs, so many challenges, so much confusion, so much sin. How do you know what you should do? Sometimes we'd all like a detailed script for our lives from God with minute-by-minute minute instructions. But God wants us to grow up into wisdom. He wants us to depend upon him, to pray and talk to him about all of it, to confess our sins and repent, to read his word, to learn to walk with him. And the center of all that is meeting with him here, together with his people. And what are we here to do? We are here to worship him. And so this is what we need. We need to worship him. When we worship God, we become more like him. When we worship him, we are changed a little more into the particular reflection of him that we were created to be. So as a minister of this gospel, I summons you to worship your king now. Come before him with joy and trembling. Come before him in all humility and love and surrender all that you are to him. Cry out to him, praise him, and ask him for his spirit, for his wisdom, for his grace. And so as we prepare to confess our sins together, turn to come down, O love divine, on page 278. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of shale surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. 
Father, we confess that we have sinned against you willfully in various ways this week. We have seen the sin coming and we have not run away. We have known that it is sin and we have done it anyway. We have known it was wrong and displeasing to you and we have given ourselves to sin despite your goodness, despite your promise to make a way of escape. We have rebelled against you. We have despised your goodness and grace. Father, we are humiliated, we are ashamed. But as your children, we have nowhere to turn but to you. So as your children, we come running to you. We fall before you in all humility and we confess our sins. No excuses, no blame shifting, just honest confession. It was wrong, we knew it was wrong, and we are sorry. We lift it all up to you and we ask you to do what only you can do. Wash us clean, create in us clean hearts, and renew in us the joy of your salvation. And Father, give us the gift of true repentance. Give us strength to kill our sin and walk away from it forever. And so we confess our individual sins silently to you now. Selah. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. 2 Samuel 22 says, He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Your sins are too strong for you, but they are not too strong for Jesus. Jesus is our great Samson, and his strength can never be taken from him. And when they thought they had him and they put him on the cross, his arms were stretched out in order to take hold of the pillars of our sin and shame, and then he pulled it all down. And when he died, your sin died in him, and now it is gone forever. So I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The text this morning, Psalm 107. These are the words of God. O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men might praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the word, the, the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and brake their bands in sunder. Oh, that men might praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass, and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men might praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare the works with rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth, and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro, they stagger like drunken, a drunken man, and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them down into their desired, their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turneth rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground. 
a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water and dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation. And sow the fields and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesseth them also, so that they are multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again, they are diminished and brought through, low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction, and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would be encouraged by it, established in it. I pray you would enable us to grow through the, the administration of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one lesson that the psalmist would like us to take away from this particular psalm, it is the desire that men would learn how to praise God for his goodness. That is a prayer that's lifted up four times in the course of this psalm. Oh, that men would learn how to praise God for his goodness. Oh, that we would be, be able to see how he deals with the children of men. He starts, he starts that in verse 8, and he repeats it three other times, a total of four times. And then in the last verse of the psalm, it says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. In other words, the last verse contains the statement of what it's going to take for the prayer to be, the prayer that's um, offered four times to be answered. What's it going to take for men to be able to understand the goodness of God? This is a difficult, challenging lesson for us to learn, but it's a lesson we must learn regardless. And it has to follow from this, either from the difficulty of the lesson or the sluggishness of the students, I suspect the latter, this is, not an easy, this is not an easy thing to accomplish. The fact that the psalmist says four times, oh, that men would learn to praise your goodness. Oh, that men would learn to praise your goodness. It must be a difficult thing for us to learn how to do. There must be something that catches us up. There must be something that stumbles us. This is not an easy thing to accomplish. And we're going to consider one of the central aspects of this difficulty shortly. But let's walk through the text first. The mercy of God is forever, and so we thank him. Verse 1, the mercy of God is everlasting. The mercy of God is forever, and so we thank him. The redeemed of the Lord, verse 2, should talk about it. The redeemed of the Lord should have that fill their conversation. The redeemed of the Lord should talk about it. Verse 2, the redeemed of the Lord should say so. The redeemed of the Lord have been gathered from every direction. Verse 3, they were out in the wilderness, and they had no city. Verse 4, they were faint, and they cried to the Lord who delivered them. We see that in 5 and 6. And he led them into their city of habitation. Verse 7. This is a nice summary of the founding of Israel. So Israel was led out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. There was no city for them to inhabit. They, they were a nomadic people out there for 40 years. And then God led them into the land and gave them cities for their habitation. And then, having given us that preface that, that summarizes the history of Israel, he then says, for the first time, oh, that men would learn how to praise God for his goodness. Oh, that men would learn that. Verse 8, he fills the hungry soul with that goodness. Verse 9, his goodness, notice this, his goodness even extends to sinners who are in affliction as a consequence of their own stupid fault. Verses 10 through 12. In other words, this is not just the goodness of God that comes down on people like, like sunshine and rain. This is not just the goodness of God that gives us uh, crops. This is not just the goodness of God that gives us water for our thirst or food for our hunger. This is the goodness of God that delivers sinners from their own entanglements. Sinners have, have walked into their own traps, they've walked into traps and they've gotten entangled in them, and God delivers them from their affliction, verses 10 through 12. When they cry out, when sinners in this kind of bad jam, when they cry out, he hears them, verses 13 and 14. Then the point is repeated the second time. The first time, verse 8, 
Oh, that men would learn how to praise God for his goodness. Then it's repeated, verse 15, oh, that men would praise God for his goodness. He has broken down their prison bars, verse 16, the chains that fools have forged out of their own iniquities, verse 17. They, their own lusts, their own iniquities, their own evil inclinations. They fashioned chains for themselves, gotten themselves all locked up in these prisons, and then they don't like it anymore, and they cry out to God, and God answers them. God delivers them. God breaks those sorts of chains. He doesn't just break the chains of external oppressors. He breaks the chains that we have forged ourselves. They are in a bad enough way to, even to abhor food, and they are near death. Finally, they get to the point where they cry out to God. I guess there's nothing we can do but pray. And someone says, oh, has it come to that? You, it's, it's finally come to that. It's come to that. We need to pray. They finally cry out to God, and he delivers them, verses 18 through 20. A third time. A third time, oh, that men would praise God for his goodness, verse 21. Oh, that men would praise God for his goodness. Let them sacrifice to him and declare his works, verse 22. Sailors see the work of God. They see the works of God, verses 23 and 24. The winds and waves testify by going up to heaven and down to the depths, 25 through 26. If you want to see the power of God, go to sea. You want to see the power of God, go to see, and you're going to get some inclination of how powerful God is. When I was in the Navy, we, I was in the submarine service, and we would come up, when we're coming up to the surface, we'd come up to 200 feet, 200 feet down. And if the seas were rough up top, you could feel it 200 feet down. You, you came to 200 feet, and you said, okay, uh, you seasick guys, you, you're, going to have, you're going to have trouble. The men stagger on deck like drunkards and they cry out to God. They stagger on the deck like drunkards, they cry out to God, and he stills the storm, verses 27 through 29. And they are glad when he brings them into their haven, verse 30. God is the one who does this marvelous thing, and this is the backdrop, this is the backdrop to the disciples' astonishment when the Lord speaks to the wind and waves, and they obey him. All right, this is, uh, this is in, in Psalm 107. God is the one who has control of the oceans. God is the one who has control of the wind and waves. And so what is the disciples' response when the Lord speaks to the wind and waves? And they are obedient. Their response, Mark 4:41, is, who is this? Who is this? Only God can speak this way to the wind and waves. Who is this man that he does this? Notice that this third time when the psalmist is inviting us to uh, in, in declaring that he wishes men would learn to praise God for his goodness, this particular set of circumstance, this particular deliverance is not deliverance uh, from affliction because of sins that people have committed, other than maybe the sin of joining the Navy, uh, the, the, the sin of going to sea. Maybe that wasn't, maybe, you know, you're out at sea, you're reeling like a drunken man, it's a terrible storm, and you think to yourself, whose idea was this? Whose idea was it to come to sea like this? But generally, there's no, these are just merchants or these are people uh, out at sea for, for honorable reasons, and yet a storm can come upon them and God delivers them. And then the refrain comes a fourth time. Verse 31, oh, that men would praise God for his goodness, praise him in the congregation as we are doing here. Verse 32, praise him for his work in raising up and throwing down. He dries up rivers and springs, verse 33. He makes a fruitful land desolate, verse 34. And he does so on account of the wickedness there, verse 34. So people are, are, uh, people are behaving wickedly. So you remember that when Abraham, and Abraham gave Lot first choice and Lot chose the green, luscious, um, fruitful land, which turned out to be the land that was the, the future place of the Dead Sea, right? The, he, Lot chose the place that was going to be made into an everlasting uh, wilderness, or at least a wilderness for the time being. God dried that up. God is the one who did that. God is the one who makes the wilderness fruitful, and he's the make, he makes the fruitful places into a wilderness. He goes both directions. He can go the other way as well. He turns the wilderness into a lake. He turns dry ground into springs. 
verse 35. He gathers in the hungry and he gives them a city for habitation, verse 36. He gives them fields and vineyards overflowing with bounty. Verse 37, he grants them increase and will not let their cattle decrease. Verse 38, God is the Lord of prosperity and God is the Lord of the lack of it. God is the Lord of prosperity and God is the Lord of the lack of it. But then there's another turn. Verse 39, the people are brought into affliction. Then he heaps contempt upon princes and throws them out. Verse 40. He sets the poor man in a high place, verse 41. In other words, new wineskins always turn into old wineskins. Wonderful new works always grow to a point where they think they've always been this way. They've always been this important. They've always been number one. They become fat and sassy, and so then God has to deal with them. They, they, they were the oppressed. God raised them up. They start to get full of themselves, and then God throws them down and raises up the poor in their economy. So God sets the poor in a high place, verse 41, and gives him abundance. The righteous see and understand the pattern, and they rejoice in it. All right, so God is the one who lifts up. God is the one who throws down. God is the one who delivers. God is the one who puts us in the affliction so that we might cry out, so that he might deliver us. God is the Lord of the whole process. Iniquity is shut down, and iniquity, iniquity finally shuts up, verse 42. So, do you want to be wise? Do you want to be wise? The one who is wise will observe these things. The one who is wise will look at the pattern that's set out in this psalm. And these are those who understand the loving kindness, the Hebrew word is hesed, the loving kindness of the Lord. Look at the pattern established in this psalm and look at the hesed, look at the loving kindness of the Lord. The loving kindness of the Lord is as much evident in his delivery into affliction as it is in his delivery from it. It's as much in throwing down haughty princes as it is in raising up humble poor men. So we, we want to look at these patterns and we want to understand the hesed of the Lord. And this is what we must learn to take away. This is what we have to take away from this psalm. And so I want to, I want to structure this problem for us. I want to uh, talk about a very common problem that we all have, and that common problem that we all have is problems, right? We, we all have problems. Everyone here has troubles. Everyone here has troubles. And the fact that somebody on the other side of the world has a different set of troubles is of no concern to you when you're in the middle of your troubles. Your toothache is not going to be mitigated by the fact that someone on the other side of the world has two toothaches, right? You're, you've got your toothache, you've got your trouble, and your mind is your life, your mind, your horizons are filled up with your trouble. If you, if you are in third grade, you've got third grade troubles. If you are a preschool kid, you've got uh, troubles at that level. If you are elderly, you've got troubles of the, uh, you've got elderly troubles. If you are sick, you've got sick troubles. If you are prosperous, you've got prosperity troubles. And, and some people say, yeah, right, prosperity troubles. Uh, I'd give anything to have those kind of prosperity troubles. Well, no. Now, it's, it's, you are not in a position to evaluate other people's troubles. You're not in a position to evaluate them. You're not even in a position actually to evaluate your own troubles. You don't understand your own troubles. You are in trouble because you don't understand. And troubles are intended by God to bring us to the point of understanding. So here, here's the setup. We live in a world where hard things happen. We live in a world where hard things happen. Hard things happen to losers and wretches. Hard things happen to losers and wretches. wretches and hard things happen to sweet saints. Hard things happen to wonderful people and hard things happen to people that you tend to think they had it coming. If we set ourselves up as judges on the sidelines, we are going to reveal just how ignorant we are. We are going to look at life as though it were a gigantic vending machine, and we are going to take note of who gets their product and who doesn't. Who puts the coins in and doesn't get their product and, and got gypped? And you know, how does this, how does this work? 
When a nice person does not get his product, when bad things happen to good people, in other words, we rail at heaven as though some kind of injustice were going down. Because we think that we have an objective, you know, we've got this balcony that we're standing in that's bolted to nothing, and we're looking down on the world, evaluating from our finite uh, from our finite position, oh, that good person had a bad thing happen, and that bad person had a good thing happen, and I, do, I think life is unfair. I just think life is just terribly unfair. This problem is as old as Scripture in the Psalms. The, the psalmist in another place says, I saw the wicked flourishing like a green bay tree. I saw the wicked flourishing, and, and why, why do people... Um, why do people who despise God, who despise his word, who don't want to live in accordance with his word at all, they have millions of dollars and driving around in, in nice cars and live in these mansions and they have everything going for them. I, the wicked flourish like a green bay tree and I've got an aunt who's the sweetest person who ever lived and she's got this trouble and this trouble and this trouble and this trouble and this trouble. How, how is this possible? How is this just? All right, our problem is that we, finite beings, are looking at a very, very big world from the side, and we think we understand it. We think we see what's going on. We think we get it. In order, in order to protect our false assumption that the vending machine always works, and that good people always get their product, and bad people always um, don't, or routinely don't, in order to protect our false assumption, we simply declare that that nice person must actually have been a sinner, right? That nice person really had a problem. Job's three com comforters simply assumed that he must have done something to deserve what he got. They arrive in Job 2.11, and their whole point in being there is, Job, you need to admit that you did it. You need to admit that you did something wrong. These, these, these problems would not have been raining down on your head like you were Egypt and God were raining down plagues out of Egypt. Why, why are you innocent and Egypt was guilty? Plagues rained down on Egypt because Egypt was guilty. You're, you're maintaining your innocence and yet this happened, the Chaldeans and the, uh, you know, the, the storms, all, all of these things happened, destroyed your, your family, your wealth, you must, you must be Job, you must be a sinner. The disciples wanted to know who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind in John 9, 2. Who, well, this guy's blind, clearly he didn't get his product. Clearly he's not getting the good thing, that means he must be a bad man. If he's not getting good things, he must be a bad man. Jesus rebuked the so-called wisdom that said that the men crushed by the Tower of Siloam were worse than others, or the men that Pilate killed when they were sacrificing were worse than others in Luke 13, 1 through 5. So this is a natural assumption. You want to say, well, I want to believe in the goodness of God. I want to believe in the goodness of God. That's uh, axiom number one, which is, that's good, four times. Oh, that men would praise the goodness of God. I want to believe in the goodness of God, A. And B, I want life to be simple and understandable by me. Uh, th those are the two things I insist on. I want God to be good, and I want to get it. I want to understand what's going on. I want to be able to comprehend everything that is happening. The point that Scripture makes is not that it's impossible to read the circumstance, but that it is easy to read it wrongly. The Bible does not tell us to not read the story. We're supposed to read the story, but we're supposed to read it accurately. Reading it wrongly is the problem, not reading it. The difficulty is not that you're reading your circumstance. The, the, the problem is that you're reading it simplistically. The, the problem is that you are applying a very wooden uh, system to this complicated world. Some of God's favorites, some of God's favorites, we know that David, some of, uh, take David for one example, God loved him, he was a man after God's own heart. How many troubles did David go through? Countless troubles. Now David could say, uh, he could reason simplistically, God must hate me, look at all the troubles I'm in. God must hate me, look at all the troubles I'm in. Or he could say, God must love me, look at all the troubles he's delivered me from. 
Oh, that men would learn to praise the goodness of God. In order to praise the goodness of God, you have to see the goodness of God. And in order to see the goodness of God, you have to have perspective. And that perspective is not from outside. You cannot, you, you are finite, you are limited, you are a creature. You don't have the privilege of walking off to the sidelines and occupying a, the position of a coach. You're not on the sidelines watching as a coach, evaluating the plays or evaluating the players. You don't have that right, you don't have that privilege, and you're just going to garble the whole thing. In order to understand troubles rightly, and in order to understand prosperity rightly, you have to view them by faith from within, inside them. You cannot view, you cannot view anything rightly from outside. You are not big enough to view from outside. You have to view these things from within. The hinge, the hinge of all faithful living is faith. This is a, <coughs> excuse me, this truth is found both in Habakkuk and in Romans. Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Faith can only be exercised from within the trouble or from within the prosperity. You cannot detach yourself and say, if you detach yourself and walk 50 yards off and look at the prosperity of Abraham or the prosperity of um, Sodom and Gomorrah before the fire fell or the prosperity and the wealth of Babylon, look at all, all in the book of Revelation, the merchants lament when ba the great Babylon falls and the smoke from her rises up forever and ever. The merchants are wailing because this is a terrible thing. Uh, Babylon, man, do you, do you understand what the gross domestic product was there? And all of it is up in smoke and the saints of God say, hallelujah. Look at the GDP go up in the sky. Hallelujah. Obviously, we need an interpretive grid that does more than simply look at a distance from the side at wealth and prosperity or affliction. All right, so the just shall live by faith. And faith knows how to take the affliction apart and how to examine it from the inside. The afflictions that you're going through, the troubles that you're going through, they are your troubles because you're inside them. Your blessings when you're having a good day, when you're having a good stretch, that it's your prosperity, it's your blessing because you're inside. You're inside it. Now, here's the difficulty. Inside your trouble, when you're inside your trouble, when you're inside your affliction and you're and time doesn't stop, you're in your trouble, and sometimes it seems like it's stopped, but it doesn't stop. 24, 24 hours are still going by regularly. You're inside your trouble, and your trouble, and you inside, are blowing down the road. Your prosperity with your, you inside is blowing down the road 24 hours a day. Everybody's going through life at the same rate. God makes us all drive the same speed. There's a fixed speed limit. 24 hours a day. That's how, and you're inside your trouble. The difficulty that you have is when you are inside that trouble and there's no windshield. Right? There's no, you can't see where you're going. You're just inside it. You're in this bouncy ball and you're just heading down the road or you're in this uh, prosperity with no windshield and you just assume you, what happens when you're inside prosperity and there's no windshield you become complacent. You start to take it all for granted. When, when you're inside a trouble and you have no windshield, no way of seeing out, no way of seeing past the trouble, what you become is you, you give way to despair. Right? So, and then if you're watching the whole thing from the side and you're watching, well, that's a good person and he's got troubles and that's a bad person and he's having a good time, you, you become cynical. You, be, you become nihilistic. You become, well, human history doesn't mean anything. God is not a covenant-keeping God. God is not a God of goodness. But he is. Four times in this psalm, oh, that men would learn to praise the goodness of God. Now, he's saying this, he's describing in excruciating detail through this psalm, all the troubles that we get in. Men go to sea and they get into trouble. Men do stupid things and they do stupid things for years and years and years and they get themselves addicted. They get themselves in debt. They get themselves in broken relationships. They get everything, everything blows apart. 
And God is good to people like that. God wants to give them a windshield. God wants them to give them, God wants to give them perspective, but there's no way to have perspective by getting outside of it. You have to walk by faith inside it and you have to see through, you have to see out. First Timothy four, four and five says, for every creature of God is good. Everything created by God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Your troubles, just like, your, just like dinner, you receive your food, you bow your head, you thank God for dinner. God provides you with a new car, a car that runs. You thank God for the car that runs. God provides you with a home. You thank God for the, for the home that he gave you to dwell in. God gives you a beautiful day. You thank God for the beautiful day. God gives you troubles. You thank God for the troubles because the troubles are hand-stitched. The troubles are tailor-made for you. The troubles are yours, handcrafted. So everything is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And you don't sanctify something from a distance. You sanctify with everything you receive, you receive as your possession, and you're grateful for your possession, the thing that you are in possession of right that minute. When you look at blessing from the outside, how can you tell whether it's a Deuteronomic blessing or not? Maybe you're the rich fool in the parable on the verge of building yourself some bigger barns. Luke 12, 18. The rich man said, oh, look at, look at my prosperity. Look at how wonderful everything is. I'm going to tear these down. I'm going to build bigger barns. So there's, you might be that guy. And, and from 50 yards, you can't tell if you're that guy. From 50 yards away, you can't tell if you're that guy. Then there's this. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now that person is blessed and you can't tell whether that person in Proverbs 3 is blessed or whether he's the rich fool of Luke 12. Is he the rich fool or is he the, the blessed is he receiving Deuteronomic blessings that, as described in Proverbs 3? You can't tell from a distance. You can't tell from outside. Right? You simply can't tell. You're not competent to, to make that evaluation. And yet, you must make that evaluation. You've heard me say, use this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, Thanksgiving uh, dinner, you've got the table, the table is groaning with all these, you know, everything is perfect. Yet again, another year, mom pulled it off again. The table, table is perfect. And that we're about family, let's thank God for all his bounty to us. And then a bright sophomore in high school says, dad, how do, why, we're thanking God for this, but how do we know that God's not just fattening, fattening us up for the day of slaughter? How do we know that we're not just pigs in a sty? How do we know that, this, that we're not the rich fool? How, how can I know that? Well, he, this is the thing. You cannot walk off and get object, ob, objective distance and find out which it is from a distance. You can only find out from inside, and you can only find out from inside by gratitude itself. Remember in, in 1 Timothy 4, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. What is it that gives you perspective? Distance does not give you perspective. Distance does not give you perspective. Distance does not give you objectivity. Gratitude does it. Gratitude is the thing that puts everything together. Gratitude is the thing that provides the windshield, right? So if, if you have gratitude in your heart, to the, to the God of your fathers, and you're saying, God, thank you for the barns filled with plenty, you're not the rich fool. If you were looking, man, look at all, look what I've done. If you're Nebuchadnezzar looking down at Babylon saying, look at this great Babylon that I've built, you're being a, a rich fool. You're being full of yourself. You don't have any kind of perspective at all because you're not grateful. If you are grateful, you have perspective by definition. So we are to walk by faith, not by sight, and faith is always grateful. We are to walk by faith, not by sight, and faith is always grateful. We're not supposed to figure out whether or not something is a blessing, and then, having done our due diligence by sniffing at God's kindness suspiciously, then thanking him for it. 
Well, I, I don't know if this is a blessing or not. I don't know. I don't know. Careful, honey. I don't want to give the paycheck. I want to give. You, I don't want to give you the paycheck too quickly. It might be God's condemnation. No, you just thank, gratitude. So our Thanksgiving, our Thanksgiving is what makes it one thing or the other. Stories told of a poor woman, uh, poor woman who had a bowl of soup or not much left, like like the widow in, uh, the, that Jesus pointed out who threw her two little pennies into the treasury. She looked at her little bowl of thin soup and said, all this and Christ too. All this and Christ too. That kind of gratitude is what does it. So this applies to thanksgiving for simple blessings and for the and for the forgiveness that comes for forfeited blessings, but where the blessing comes anyhow. So when I send myself into a bad jam, I forfeit deliverance, right? If I, if I was the one who was the foolish son in the parable, who took my inheritance and squandered it on buying drinks on the house and squandered it on harlots and squandered it on everything, and then I come to stare, I'm staring at the pig food, wishing that I, I had as much as the pigs had, and I repent, the father receives us back. But th all those, the father receiving you back is forfeited. The father didn't have to receive him back, but he did. And God's like that. It applies also and especially to the blessings that come to us camouflaged. The blessings come to us camouflaged. It is there that we must really walk by faith. Herbert Schlossberg said that the kingdom of God advances from triumph to triumph, every last one of the triumphs cleverly disguised as a disaster. That's how God works. What was the worst day in the history of the human race? When the Son of God was crucified. What was the worst thing this planet ever did? Crucified Jesus. And what was the day of our salvation? It was the crucifixion of Jesus. God knows how to deliver stupid people. God knows how to deliver us from the consequences of our own folly. Not only does he know how to do it, he loves to do it. Not only does he know how to deliver us from the consequences of our own folly, he loves doing it. And so Christ is the heart of every blessing, right? We walk by faith, the just shall live by faith. Faith is always attended with gratitude and faith and gratitude are not possible if Christ is not present. Put another way to return to the earlier illustration, Christ is the windshield. Christ is the one who enables you to see out of your trouble. Christ is the one who enables you to see past your current prosperity and not take it for granted. So Christ is the heart of every blessing. Christ's presence is what makes it a blessing. Christ is at the heart of every affliction. Let me say that again, Christ is at the heart of every affliction and his presence is what makes that affliction a long haul blessing. Christ is right there in every affliction and his presence is what makes that affliction actually a long haul blessing. Paul says in Romans 8.18, this is just a few verses before, he says all things work together for good for them that love God. This is just as glorious and it's on the same theme. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let me say that again. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth to be compared, not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us set up a balance, set up the, one of those old time scales, and God puts 10 gold bricks on one side. That's the glory that's gonna be revealed. And then your current troubles, whatever they are, your current troubles are the dust on the other side of the scales. You might wanna, you might wanna blow it off. Our present troubles, that's what Paul says, our present troubles are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be, the, the glory that will be revealed in us, in us. Notice that, in us. You have to see, you have to see everything in your life, everything in your surrounding circumstances from your current position, from where you are. 
If things are going well for, for you, if God is blessing you, if God is ladling out blessings of the classical kind, you have to see past that. You have to see past that. You need a windshield. If you're in the middle of heart affliction, if you're in the middle of family trials, if you're in the middle of financial trials, if you've got marriage troubles, if you've got a wayward child, if you've got affliction, if you've got difficult affliction, medical trials, whatever the trial is, you need a windshield and you need to see out of it. You need to see past it. Jesus did this. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was in trouble. He was in trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was wrestling with God, saying, if there's any way to have this cup pass for me, I want this cup to pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus looked out past his current trouble. Jesus looked past it, and he looked past it by faith. Why? Because the just live by faith. Jesus was the ultimately just one. He was the ultimately faithful one. And so, what does this enable us to do? Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't just say giving thanks in all things, but for all things. Giving thanks for all things. God, I will trust you. Though they slay me, I will trust you. Though they take everything away, I will trust you. Though other people seem to be hell-bent on wrecking their own lives, people who are dear to me are throwing it all away, I will trust you. Though you give me abundant blessing, I will trust you. Though the, fig tree, though the fig tree does not blossom, I will trust you. Though I get a terrible disease, I will trust you. Though friends let me down, I will trust you. Though my marriage is not what I thought it was going to be, I will trust you. All right, this is, this is the fundamental ground level attitude that God wants his people to have. Now, when God, when God grants you this windshield, when you're no longer in this opaque ball of trouble. You're no longer encased in your troubles. You're no longer encased in your life. When God grants you perspective, and it's the perspective of faith, thanksgiving, and Christ. When God gives you that perspective, you know what you have? Perspective. You can see, right? There's actually a road here, you know? I didn't know there was a road. I didn't know there was a point. I didn't know where I was going. I, I just had this terrible sensation of everything being out of control. It's all senseless. When God's people learn to thank him, when God's people learn to thank him, everything swims into focus. Everything comes into focus. And if you would walk in wisdom, let me read 43 again. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the hesed of the Lord. If you are wise, this is what you will learn. Verse 8, oh, that men, oh, that men will praise God, for his, uh, praise God for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 15, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And then again, a third time, verse 21, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. And then again, a fourth time, oh, that men would praise God for his goodness, verse 31, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Is that your God? Do you praise God for being like that? Or is the word God just a placeholder for some impotent idol? Is this your God? Because this is the God of the Bible. Is this your God because it's the God of the Bible? This is the God who has declared to you. This is the God who stilled the waves. This is the God who loves his people in the midst of whatever possible trouble they might be in. He loves you and he loves your troubles because he gave them to you. They're his present to you so that you might see him deliver you out of them all. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Father, we thank you for how good you are. We do praise you for your goodness. <coughs> we pray, Father, that your, your goodness would be manifest to us and that we'd be able to take hold of it. And Father, we pray that we'd be able to take hold of it because we've realized 
after the fact that it is it is actually taken hold of us. Revelation 19 verses 7 through 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. This table is a weekly preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb, a weekly practice for feasting with Christ in glory with all the saints forever. And so we want to practice well, and as far as we are able, we want to see a true, a true preview and not misunderstand what is happening here. So notice in this text that the New Jerusalem, the church, appears before God arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, and that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But notice where the linen came from. It was given to her. It was granted to her. And so this is how you make yourself ready. This is how you prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb and for this table. You receive what he has given to you. You put on what he has granted. And what he grants is righteousness. And he grants it in such a way that it can be rightly called the righteousness of the saints. So mark this well. You do not make yourself ready by conjuring up good works out of your own inner goodness as if that existed. You do not prepare yourself for God by being good, by doing righteous acts of your own. No, you prepare yourself for God by receiving his goodness, which then becomes your goodness. You get ready by putting on the clean, bright linen of his righteousness. Our hearts and hands are dirty. We can never make our clothes clean enough. You and I are not good, but it has been granted to all who ask to wear the lamb's linen. He is the spotless lamb, and if you wear his linen, you stand before God completely spotless and clean. And so blessed are all those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The end of every service, you receive a benediction. That's what it says in the bulletin, benediction. A benediction is a blessing. But it's not just because that's a nice thing to do. It's not just because that's, that's sort of that's a, a Bible thing. The, the point of it is the point of what we just heard charged to you this morning, that you would learn to give thanks to the Lord. And so all through the service, the Lord is blessing you. The Lord is assuring you of his love. You've heard it proclaimed to you. You've just feasted at his table, his blessings upon you. And just because we're people and we forget, God says one more time, I want you to get this. I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you. So when you say amen at the end of the blessing, I want you to be thinking in your heads, thank you. Thank you. So his blessing is on you now, and as you go out throughout the week, and as his blessing is going with you and is remaining on you, so that you can thank him in all of it. So the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. And amen. Amen.